special edition of Knowing God with Heart and Mind, the virtual church classroom podcast from Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. Knowing God with Heart and Mind listeners were promised a special podcast recorded in the Holy Lands. Unfortunately, we did not find the right opportunities to do so. Nevertheless, I've written some vignettes that I will now share with you, if only for my mom, who specifically requested reflections from a few of the locations we visited. So, Mom, here is a reflection from one stop at each of the, on each of the days of our journey. One stop from each of the days of our journey. I hope that you will be blessed, all of you, especially you, Mom. Day one, standing on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea about 20 miles north of Tel Aviv provides panoramic views of ancient history and modernity. The place is called Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the Sea. In the years just before Christ's birth, King Herod the Great ordered the construction of a strategically significant port city that would help to solidify his standing with the superpower empire of Rome. Herod's genius is inescapable as one imagines the grandeur of his creations. Yet he was corrupt in his spirit. Everything he made and did for the sake of his greatness has been relegated to ruins and historical study. There's a large theater that seated 3,500 people and a hippodrome that saw many violent chariot races. Most notable is the massive aqueduct that once carried fresh water from the north over 60 miles of rugged terrain. All else is crumbled ruins, much of which is buried under sand or submerged just below the breaking waves. Here is the place where the Roman governor Pontius Pilate resided. This is the place where he must have pondered the things he'd seen and heard regarding that Jesus of Nazareth he'd allowed the mob to kill. He too is relegated to history chiefly remembered because of that one decision. Yet his victim is alive today and reigns over a kingdom that will never end. It's hard to imagine that great cities, both large and small, will all fade away into ruin eventually. Yet a visit to the countless wasting towns found across the North American continent will bear witness to this endless cycle. See the ruins of great factories, proud churches, see the crumbling sidewalks, Day 2. On the Sea of Galilee, which is really a very large and deep lake, one could stand or sit in any boat and instantly be transported to another time. A silenced marine engine leaves only the sound of lapping water and gentle breezes. Scanning the surrounding landscape from deep channel waters reveals settings that seem unchanged from ancient times. To the west stands the unmistakable outline of Mount Arbel, whose imposing brow contains dozens of caves and hundreds of bitter memories. Behind and beneath it lies the narrow Valley of Doves, also known as the Valley of the Winds. It serves as a funnel for the Mediterranean storms known to rush 
in unobstructed across the vast Jezreel Valley along the Via Martis or Maris, the way of the sea. Even now, the first signs of changing weather require prompt responses, or the unwary mariner risks the same terrors experienced by the apostles on a stormy night over 2,000 years ago. Any boat on the Galilean Sea can be like the one from which Peter tenuously emerged to stand where Jesus stood, outside the boat. Sailing on the ancient lake that was so central to the life and ministry of Jesus and his apostles is like looking at the stars on a moonless night from a barren prairie. The absence of modernity, it gives a clearer view to a greater distance. Day three, in far northern Israel, where the headwaters of the Jordan River descend from Mount Hermon, there is a gateway to hell. Caesarea Philippi is very lush and full of life, yet across the centuries it has witnessed violent acts of sensual worship dedicated to gods of the flesh, gods for whom the Lord held special contempt. The ancient Canaanites built a sanctuary to Baal there, the Greeks and the Romans both built sanctuaries there because of the cave of Pan. Inside the cave was a seemingly bottomless pit with an unlimited quantity of water, which made the pagans marvel. It was referred to as the gate of hell. It's fascinating to imagine Jesus arriving in this wicked place with his apostles in the midst of statues, temples, and ritual brothels. Pan, the god of wildness and sensuality, was celebrated and emulated there. Amidst all the fleshly indulgence, ostensibly wrought directly from hell, there stood the Messiah and his pupils. Here is the place, he asked them, who do you say I am? Here is where Peter boldly stated, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here is where Jesus stated that the gates of hell could not stand against that truth. Once in a wilderness time of weakness, Satan tempted Jesus to worship him. Then, in the house of worship dedicated to Satan, Jesus declared his sovereignty, and the faithful followed him to a nearby mountain to see the fullness of his glory. Day four. On a breezy, cool bluff, there is a small roadside park that overlooks the border between northern Israel and Syria. Behind and high above is a solitary hill with an Israeli military outpost clad in olive drab. Ahead is a vast, rolling landscape dotted with villages. In the distance stands the ancient city of Damascus, though it is indistinguishable from here. It is surreal for the foreigner who only knows of these places because of limited media coverage in his homeland. It is difficult to understand the threats and implications of war when one has only imagined it as a passing thought. Here is the reality. Villages filled with homes, schools, businesses, houses of worship, and 
all the other trappings of community stand between competing ideologies and political machinations. One day, the owners of the winery and the chocolate shop may be described as casualties of a missile attack that was undeterred by the Iron Dome. The wrinkled cellar of fresh fruits and nuts may be driven into cruel hands. The barking dogs and wandering cats found in every place where people are gathered will be silenced, even as the world beyond this pleasant, temperate home of vineyards and minefields will just go on with little notice. This shelf below the outpost and above the future battlefield became a place of prayer for a few moments as I sought God's grace for the innocent. Day 5 from the town of Jericho, one can look across the bland, sand-colored domes toward a distant tan and brown wall of mountains far across the Jordan River. A blue, cloudless sky allows the sun's rays to glint on any reflective surface within view. The land from Jericho to the river descends slowly, dotted with date palms and thorny bushes rippling like a cat's back. It isn't too hard to imagine the people of Jericho looking this way as the seasonal floods fashioned the sloping landscape for miles along the banks of the Jordan. They could have seen the countless Israelites encamped at the foot of the mountains to the west, the glint of sunlight upon shields and swords and spears would have been vastly diminished by the brilliant glare of the sun upon the golden cherubim on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Can you imagine Jericho's terror as the ark passed through the floods of the water, leaving a dry path for the multitude behind? The city of Bethlehem is busier and noisier than it has been for many years. There's no place left that will remind you of a little town silently sleeping as the stars go by. The terraced hills that once fed temple flocks and witnessed the otherworldly celebration of angels are littered with debris of every kind. The chapel and shrine dedicated to protecting the sacred location of Christ's birth is surrounded by commercialism and controversy. Hundreds of pilgrims from around the world wait for hours to enter the shrine of the Star of Bethlehem. The nearby minaret, a common thing around Christian and Jewish holy sites, blares the chanted Arabic call to prayer. Those who persevere will experience the audaciously garnished shrine that shows no real resemblance to the humble cave in which our Savior was born. However, in a small Franciscan churchyard a few miles away, there is a cave that was preserved in humility. It is said to mark the place where the shepherds kept their flocks by night. The cave is decorated with some simple scenes of the nativity, but they only serve to bring the truer form of the Lord's birth to life. It is humbling to realize that Jesus was born in the place where sacrificial lambs were kept. It's remarkable in its utter obscurity.
Day 7 There are high-walled gardens at the place where once there was a substantial olive pressing operation. Now the olive grove is separated by a lane that shunts traffic and strolling pilgrims from the top of the Mount of Olives to the bottom. In these gardens there stand ancient olive trees that were present at the time when Christ swept blood and pleaded, Father, take this cup away from me. It seems altogether likely since olive trees never really die. As they mature, olive trees force new growth to emerge from the dead and dying parts, leaving an ever-widening trunk of gnarled stems. The trees in the Garden of Gethsemane look like ancient sentinels whose, who, who no doubt possess long memories. It's difficult to fully grasp all that they have witnessed over the last two centuries. They've seen the constant parade of victors and victims on, the, on and around the Temple Mount. These trees drew nutrition, no doubt, from blood-soaked soil. They've even witnessed something God the Father prevented the apostles from seeing, the broken spirit of his beloved son, their master. The apostle, the apostle slept while the olive trees kept watch over a being whose misery was impossible for humans to imagine. They stretched their limbs toward him but could not comfort the back that would be shredded unjustly or hold the one who would be pierced for our transgressions. These trees watched as the apostles slept and a suffering Savior bore the weight of human depravity and self-indulgence. These olive trees listened as the Son pleaded with the Father whose ears were shut by the sins He bore so that humans could enter into the Father's grace. Perhaps the olive trees bear witness to the Son's pain as they live forever and shed tears of green and brown and black, tears that feed and fuel generations of those for whom the sun suffered so much. The cosmic forces that battled in this garden permanently marked the whispering witnesses who still stand here today. Their silent testimony is palpable even today. When one stands upon the Temple Mount, there is a sense of the constant tension associated with the place. It is a place that symbolizes the underlying natures of those who claim it. For the Jews, it is a place of longing and hope. For the Christian, it is a source of joy. And for the Muslim, it is a rally point for jihad. The Mount's white marble tiles blind the wandering observer while the kafia-clad, mustachioed, dark-skinned men of Islam watch and smoke cigarettes in the scattered places of shade. At the entry point, there are Israeli guards in heavy armor. Their assault weapons and riot gear stand close by. It's good to be able to say that you've stood upon that heart of human history where God reaches down and humans dare to rise up. It is a volatile place, and it is sobering to cross it.
Pilgrims filled the courtyard at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and as they emerged from the narrow streets of the Via Dolorosa, the courtyard ebbs and swells as the steady flow of visitors enter and exit the massive church. As with the Church of the Nativity, there is a long line of pilgrims waiting to enter the sepulchre. They will eventually witness the indistinguishable remains of a cave that stands in the midst of the great rotunda. The shrine is bolstered by iron beams and covered with extravagant decorations that include tapestries and censers. Inside the cramped little rooms, one finds even more decorations. Apart from its central role in the bloody history of the place, the shrine offers little to inspire the pilgrim who is not Eastern Orthodox. The study of history can... A student of history can marvel in the wonder as he imagines the countless bloodbaths within the sacred walls as Christians fought over the control of the shrine with other Christians. Outside in the courtyard, the church's bells have begun to ring and there are at least half a dozen ancient church bells just a hundred feet above the heads of the pilgrims. The largest resounds inside one's body when it is struck with the deep-throated gong. The bells sound their cacophonous, dissonant chords as if their only purpose is to be loud. After 15 minutes of endless, patternless pounding, they cease. Or so it seems. After several seconds of silence, a random gong growls out of the big, giant bell and a smiling face is barely visible within the tower. Then, as if on cue, the giant speakers atop the nearby minaret next to the courtyard wall blare with the imams call to prayer. It is a sign of unfinished business left over from the last crusade. In the past, when Muslims were in control of the holy city, the ringing of church bells was strictly forbidden. Now they ring all the louder but not without a bitter reply. Day 10. The area below the Temple Mount, just south of Al-Aqsa Mosque, is known as the City of David. It is the site of the earliest dwellings in the city we call Jerusalem. It can be said that there is no place one can go in the City of David that isn't uphill. It is a neighborhood built upon multiple layers of history. At its base is the Pool of Siloam that is fed by the Gihon Spring. An elaborate system of tunnels and pathways will guide the visitor through fascinating labyrinths of history. The most remarkable part of the journey requires blind faith and simple courage to enjoy. The water tunnel named for King Hezekiah, who is credited with the construction 
of it still slews water underground and west of the city for safe access within its walls. One can walk the length of the tunnel and marvel at its construction. All that is required is the willingness to wade in cold, knee-high water through a shoulder-width tunnel that is unlit apart from whatever light one brings along. The ceiling ranges from 5 feet to 25 feet high, and the 700-meter walk is relentlessly redundant as it weaves back and forth along natural faults in the bedrock. There is a temptation to fear as the light at the end of the tunnel seems always to be just around the next bend. Finally, the narrow channel opens into the storied pool, and there is a local man swimming in its depths. There is little or no change in the hewn stone from which we surface. Looking upward to the sky through the crevasse, one feels the same connection with the past that was experienced at the Sea of Galilee. Day 11. The ageless ruins of Jerash and Petra in Jordan are breathtaking to explore after hours of driving through boundless desert. There is an inescapable awe that one feels when first confronted with the ancient wonders. After the obligatory photo op, the awe slowly fades, and one is struck by the lifelessness of the places. If you filter out the tourists and the guides and the peddlers and you are left with a view of silent, empty skeletons inhabited by rodents and birds, then you see what these are. Ruins. The flesh and blood of the city is long dead. Once again, the remnants remind us that nothing lasts forever, no matter how great and vital it seems to be at the time. There are incredible signs of engineering genius and thoughtful splendor. Yet now it all lies in ruin. Humanity creates wonderful structures and contrivances, but it can all crumble and fall because of change in leadership. The priorities of the leaders and the will of the people they lead can change the perceived value of places and things in just a few years. An earthquake, a volcano, a storm, or an enemy attack can destroy in moments what took years to construct. What of these people do we still regard? What was their true legacy? Lessons in futility? Thanks be to God for his welcome through Jesus Christ, his son, to the kingdom that never ends. Day 12. From the depths of the Jordan River Valley, our vehicle plies its way through dusty streets in a Dead Sea resort town of lavishness and into narrow roads surrounded by dirt, scrub, and yellow grass. Bedouin shepherds drive their flocks to and from their tin and camel hair dwellings. Their apparent poverty is deceiving. Many camps have Cadillacs and Mercedes vehicles parked nearby. The Bedouins of Jordan are often wealthy but prefer the simple life over extravagant trappings. 
It is good to see these desert homes as one twists his way on the snake-spine road toward the heights of Mount Nebo. The modest tents and the numerous encampments mirror the way of life shared by Moses and the, his people so long ago. From the top of the mount, it is possible to view the wilderness of wandering that became so familiar to the Israelites. As the relentless winds thrash, one can look down to the place where the Israelites camped before marching into the promised land behind the ark. Jericho lies across the vast valley, and on the distant Judean hills to the west, it is possible to see the Mount of Olives. Here is the place where Moses finished his journey, the place where Joshua was charged with leading the people into the promise. This is the place where Michael the archangel fought with Satan for the body of Moses. From this high, windswept precipice, one can see all the lands of the Bible. It is an awesome place to behold, especially on the eve of our return home. Back home again in Jasper, Indiana here in the GHM studio where it's surreal trying to imagine all the things we saw and the thousands of miles that we covered in a couple of weeks. And yet, now that we're back, all I've managed to do is give you just a little taste. So if you would like to visit the lands of the Bible with me, I'm always ready to lead another trip. Please feel free to contact me for the details of another trip, one scheduled already, as a matter of fact. And if these vignettes have enlivened your imagination, then I'm blessed. Be sure to search the Internet for images of the places that I've mentioned. And please keep in mind that this project only covered one location per day of travel. There is so much more to see. Every waking moment in the Bible lands will enhance your reading and study of Scripture. But that's all I have for you for now. I hope that uh, this will suffice as a little taste of the trip to the Holy Land. We'll see you soon with the next episodes in our series of Bible studies. But for now, I'm going to say Shalom. Shalom.